Welcome to the Reformation Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. Uh, I am currently a PhD student at Baylor University, uh, studying the Reformation and mostly John Calvin. I am a graduate of Baylor's Truett Seminary, and I study patristic theology and history from the comfort of my home. It is very comfortable. We are in Tyler's home at this moment. So, on this first episode of the Reformation Podcast, we wanted to ask the foundational question uh, to Reformation Studies, what is, or was, or is, we'll get to that in a minute, the Reformation. And so, we're going to talk about a few key issues in the history surrounding the Reformation, a few key philosophical and theological issues that arise out of Reformation leaders and texts. And so, we're excited to be bringing that information to you as the first installment in our The Reformation podcast. But first, we have a drink pairing. On each episode of our podcast, we will have a drink pairing recommendation for you. So you can enjoy a nice alcoholic beverage while you read your Reformation literature, so you can learn about Martin Luther and chug down some beer as the old reformer did himself, Or have a nice glass of wine, as we are today. Gerhard, do you want to tell us what wine we're having today? Absolutely. Today we are having among the cheapest wines that I could find at my local grocery store, the Black Black Box Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, It's an elegantly cheap wine, um, and we chose a good, dark red wine um, to represent the Reformation. According to Reformation leaders, the Christianity started off pristine and wonderful, and that it took, that there was a relatively sudden fall into um, obscure scholasticism and obscure theological discussions and moral laxity that happened within the first few hundred years of Christianity, and it took uh, a thousand or so years to blossom into the good new wine of the reformed thought which recovered earlier patristic thought. And so, uh, just like a good wine, the reformed Christian thought is the uh, fermented fruit of the New Testament era theology. Nice and aged. Nice and aged. Although, because this is cheap wine, it is only like two years old. Yeah, this particular wine doesn't represent the Reformation except in concept yeah wine itself the form (laughs) of the wine which exists yeah so in the future you may be getting drunk over beer with luther or having uh wine with calvin which fun fact uh when calvin worked in geneva he was actually paid in wine he got a like financial payment too but he got paid in like casks of wine as well i'd be all right with that yeah it's pretty sweet so that's the uh, that's the drink pairing for today. But before we get into our discussion of the Reformation and what it was and is and continues to be, forever will be, and forever will be, always reforming. <laughs> 
A word from our sponsors. That's us. Which is us. We're the sponsors. We are two of the three co-founders of a publisher called Patristica Press. We started this press because we saw that some of the practices in the publishing industry, even on the Christian side of the industry, were not up to the ethical standards that we think it should be. So we created this press to be as author-friendly as possible and to be as ethically conscious as possible. It's 100% worker-owned. We make uh, the books in-house and we pay our authors uh, fair compensation for their books. They get a hefty 50% of the net profit of their books where most publishers would give less than 10%. And so we give you those details because we think that this is an important um, above-board way to make books. And so as the press, we also produce this free content for you, uh, the Reformation podcast. Gerhard and I are also co-hosts of a podcast called Podcastica Patristica, where we have the same type of discussion only in the more important section of history, (laughs) the patristic era of the early church. So if you want the antecedents to the Reformation, like if you want to understand Calvin more, and to do that you need to understand Augustine, listen to our other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or if you just want to bypass the Reformation, you can <laughs> No, but listen to this podcast. Don't bypass the Reformation. Yeah, do do both. Listen do to both. all of it. And rate and review us on iTunes. We can't tell you how much that helps. It helps a lot. Both this podcast, Podcastica Patristica, buy our books. Speaking of books... Uh, Gerhard has several books written, uh, published through our press. Gerhard, do you want to mention one or two of those? Yeah, there's a couple that I'll be talking about at the end of the podcast. Uh, one called Scripture Revisited, um, which is about like the notion of scripture in Christian thought, um, how we should think about the way scripture is authoritative, um, and I engage with modern discussions like inerrancy and infallibility and other generic Protestant questions, along with questions that would be more interest of more interest to Catholic and Orthodox listeners and readers, like how Scripture relates to um, traditional Christian thought and how, not if, but how early Christian thought is authoritative in Christian life and thought. So um, that's one. There are others um, that we might talk about throughout the rest of this podcast, but in order not to overwhelm you, that's the plug for today. So, Tyler, um, as we get started on the Reformation podcast, we might talk about a preface to the Reformation, um, which is the renovation of morals that happened in pre-Reformation Catholic Christianity, um, things like how the church engaged with money and sexual ethics and um, its general worldliness and what sort of reactions the church had to that. So do you want to start us off on that? Yeah, but first a question for you. Answer for you. Who is the head of the Roman Catholic Church? Oh, man, who would that... Not by name, but, like, what is their title? Uh, man, it starts with, like, a P... Pope. Pope. And where... 
Where is the Pope? Uh, Rome, of course. Rome, of course. Because the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So what happens if the Pope decides, I'm not going to stay in Rome, I'm going to stay somewhere else? Wait a say, minute. France. But Nicaea said that bishops can't vacate their, like, sees in order to move to a different city. But what if he does it anyway? Oh, man. What would happen? I bet a riot would break out. D oh, my. Yeah, I bet it would. And it did. What? So, <laughs> <laughs> this event is known as the Avignon Papacy um, because in... I forgot what year it was. In uh, the late 1300s, 1377, um, the Pope of the time, and I'm not going to overwhelm you with names because you're going to forget them, but the Pope in 1377 moved the, his seat to Avignon in France. And so people were unhappy with the fact that the Bishop of Rome is not in Rome. Um, so... Literally, riots broke out in the streets of Rome. And um, people were so upset that the cardinals got together in Rome and elected a new pope and said the guy in Avignon was not legitimate. Well, now what do we do? We have two popes. Both of them are claiming to be the official head of the one true Catholic Church. Forget those Orthodox people in the east yeah the east at this point aren't really a concern for the roman catholics well so what do we do now we have two popes i know what we should do we should elect a third guy and say that those other two guys are not legitimate <laughs> do you think that would go well uh you know i'm i'm not like i'm not like the most politically minded person but i I don't think that, that would fly very well. Like, I think that if I had a lot of power, I just wouldn't want to give it up to someone. Yeah, that's what happened. So all three of these popes now think I am the top guy. I am the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a crap show. So there was a council, uh, a council met, and this time it actually stuck. They deposed all three of those popes and said, none of you get power. All of you go sit in the corner and think about what you've done. And they finally elected Martin V as the new pope. So these two events are the political... Uh, these two events reflect the political turmoil of the age leading up to the Reformation. The Avignon Papacy, which is known... Um, as the Babylonian captivity of the church. So like, you know, in the Old Testament, when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, in this case, they're saying the church was in exile because the Pope wasn't in his seat where he is supposed to be. Captive in France. Captive in all France. the Babylons of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's how, you know, Germans and the air yep. would have thought about it. Yep. And Americans. <laughs> and Americans, like Ron Swanson. Like Ron. Well... So these two events, the Avignon Papacy, and then what is called the Great Schism, which is those three popes battling it out, show how things are really in flux in the age, politically, but also morally. Gerhard, you want to talk a little bit about the moral laxity of the age? Yeah, that, um, 
lots of things contributed to like people's distrust of the church. And I'm going to avoid saying the Catholic church. I'll probably forget and say the Catholic church, but (laughs) in order to get in the minds of people in the pre-Reformation era, it was the church. It wasn't the Catholic church, one among many options. Christianity itself was being disrespected, like Tyler said, because there was this madhouse that everyone at the time recognized was a madhouse of the Avignon Papacy and then the Great Schism, like four popes at the same time at one point. And if you're counting the three who were deposed to make way for the fourth, it was complete embarrassment to the church at the time. But alongside that embarrassment, as Tyler mentioned, there was very, very widespread moral laxity among church leaders. Um, I mentioned earlier about, um, it was in our little back and forth about Nicaea, and according to the Council of Nicaea, a bishop should never uh, be away from their city for an extended period of time. That was so the bishop could give spiritual and moral advice to the people in his community. Um, But bishops and lots of church officials just very much neglected their their communities, and they very much neglected the teaching of scripture and morals and the sacraments, um, except for for a hefty fee, as Tyler will talk about in a second, Um, so that the church leadership at the time was committing a grave and widespread sin of oversight of the people in their community. But on top of that sin of omission, there was lots of sins of commission. Uh, There are stories of um, monks and uh, all over the place going to brothels, and in fact some uh, nunneries, what's the is it just monastery for women nuns? I think it's a nunnery. Nunnery? Yeah, I said it and it didn't sound right. But, I mean, it's fine. You know what I'm saying, people of the world. Uh, nunneries being turned into actual brothels. This was... Convent. Convent. <clears throat> Should have known that. Oh, well. <laughs> We're not Catholic in case you didn't... <laughs> yeah. In case you couldn't, couldn't tell. So convents being turned into actual brothels. Um... And in fact, one of the things that sparked the Reformation um, is Luther's visit to Rome and realizing that the holy city, the New Jerusalem, was itself a cesspool of moral vileness and horribleness and bad, bad thing bad. (laughs) One of those sins being church taxes. Yeah, well, not just church taxes. The... The economic ethics of the church in that period overall was really in um really in a bad place this is gonna be loud that's me pouring wine pour me some yep this is how we prove that we're not just full of shit when we're giving you the drink pairing (laughs) so the the church had money problems and mo money mo problems as michael (laughs) scott says (laughs) One of the problems was that uh, bishops were buying their own sees. Like, if they wanted to have a more prestigious position in a bigger city, if they didn't like being, you know, stationed in Podunk, Arkansas, then they could pay some money, a, you know, give an offering, a gift to the church. A love offering. A love offering, and they would be, 
you know, generously repaid by having a more prestigious office in a bigger city. And so that problem, which was against Catholic law, like, mm-hmm. this isn't a Catholic problem. This was the leadership of, at that time of the church. The church had laws against this in their And they their actively canon. tried to fight it. Yeah. Um, but it was so rampant. Um, in addition to that, the church had always been... Uh, universally had been against usury, which just means um, charging interest for loans. They would not allow that practice to occur within the Holy Roman Empire. But the church now found ways to make money off of that exercise and began to be a little bit more lax about it. They started to allow bankers to charge interest Um, on loans that they were giving to peasants, which would put them into even more debt, which would put them even more um, vulnerable to exploitation, which was also running rampant. It was a difficult time for the poor, um, which gets into the problem of what we might call the economy of salvation, which is the fact that In order to be forgiven for sins, you would have to do penance. That would often simply mean, you know, a true contrite heart of repentance. You would say your prayers, you would do acts of contrition, but this began to be corrupted into ways for the church to make money. So they would charge you money in order to be heard at confession. They would charge you money for... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Eucharist? No. Penance? Acts of charity? Luther was pissed about it. Oh, indulgences. Indulgences. They would charge you for indulgences. Um, And all of these were ways that the poor would be exploited. They would be giving their, you know, what little money they were making to the church, and the church would use all that money to build their buildings, such as St. Peter's Cathedral. Yeah, the idea there was that, I mean, it started off pretty innocently as everything does, not everything, but <laughs> the uh, the original idea was that you could, as part of your penance, give some money to the poor, and that would cover over some of the, you know, penalty of your sin. You know, God forgave your sin, but you got to do a little bit to cover over, like, the temporal um, guilt of it, right? And so one way that the church developed was, all right, go give some money to the poor. And then the church, being good bureaucrats that they were, said, you know what, you don't need to give money to the poor, we'll just give money to the poor on your behalf. And so you give us the money, and then we'll take care of the poor. And then, like Alan Greenspan, the money that goes should have gone to the poor ends up going to the institution itself. And so what began as, um, what began as a pretty reasonable bureaucratic move turned into the worldliness of the church and yeah and it was ultimately using they they were ultimately using fear to drive this sense of charity so um you can never know for sure that you've done your penance fully you can never know that you are in the clear um that you are saved if we might use that word so you do your penance but I mean, what if you didn't give enough? What if you weren't contrite enough? So this system of fear led people to give more and more money. 
And, I mean, as Paul said, as Jesus said, it's swallowing camels and straining gnats. Yeah. You know, these people are giving all that they had, and it's being swallowed by these, essentially, bureaucrats who had taken control of the church. And just like Jesus instructed the disciples to look at the very beautiful temple that would come crashing down because of the Jerusalem hierarchy's um, extortion of the poor, uh, so Martin Luther would point to St. Peter's Basilica, um, the great temple of the church of his time, which was being, it's this, it was this magnificent building, um, and everyone at the time knew it. It was the glory of the empire, of the world in it Christianity. Yeah, it's amazing. You should check it out on the Googs. Uh, because none of us can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just it was and is this magnificent building, um, but it was built on the extortion of the poor, the extortion of the peasant working class and the yeoman and the serfs. And uh, just like Jesus prophesied that the temple would not be left stone on stone, so Luther prophesied that the um, hierarchy that built St. Peter's, even if not St. Peter's itself, would come crashing down. Which brings us to the Reformation itself. These are reasons why people were dissatisfied with Christianity at their time, and the church at their time, um, but it doesn't quite get at the Reformation. So that's the historical background. And to add to that, before we move on, you would think that because of the inherent structure of the way the Roman Catholic Church is situated, with the Pope having you know, this p position of infallibility with the magisterium, and you would think that this would have essentially crumbled the Roman Catholic system. Um, people within the system were trying to reform it for years and years. And then you have the Avignon Papacy and the schism and the, all of the corruption, sexual and economic corruption. You would think that this would have essentially said, okay, this system isn't really what Jesus had in mind and kind of forced them to move on, but it didn't. Um, that's not necessarily bad. I mean, we're not Catholic, but uh, I mean, they stayed the course, kept on with the papacy, even though the, the lineage, the apostolic succession that it was based on was compromised in the uh, Avignon papacy and the schism, if not before that. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me that everyone didn't just kind of give up. But uh, Gerhard and I were talking before we started recording that, you know, people working their farms, they weren't interested in all this so much. I mean, they wanted to live uh, good lives and follow the teachings of Jesus, which was distributed to them through the church. They didn't have it in their common vernacular. So they did what the church told them and believed that it was right. And that's okay. But it's just interesting to me to see yeah. the kind of how shaken everything was. And you, despite that, it lived on. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of the vernacular, um, one of the things that, so this is all the background to the Reformation, what gets people thinking. One of the things that more closely um, Clo more closely fed into the Reformation and 
some would argue, me being at least one of those some, uh, that a thing that was perfected in the Reformation was what we might call Christian humanism. Um, this, if you grew up in circles where people like Ken Ham or, I don't know, who are, Ken, Ken Hovind, that he's got a fun Allie G interview, if you're not doing anything, <laughs> it's called Science. Uh, what is it all about? You'll have to find out for yourself. Um, other, like, right-wing, conservative, evangelical groups hear humanism, and they think secular humanism, like, people are awesome, and there's no God, and let's do whatever the hell we want. Like, moder modern atheism that sees yeah. all ethics and all truth, which is relative, being just rooted in human experience. Yeah. That's what people think of today sometimes when they hear humanism, but that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about medieval humanism, Christian humanism. Uh, these are figures um, like Erasmus and then even better figures like Luther and Calvin, especially Calvin. Did I mention Calvin? <laughs> who uh, They were interested in reinvigorate, reinvigorating the culture, the society, and the church which were all kind of the same thing in their time by returning to classical sources of thought and morals and ethics, overlooking all the really awkward Greek stuff, um, spiritualizing all that stuff with Plato yeah. and Socrates. And, and the, the motto of the humanists was ad fontes, which means to the source. And so what they desired to do was go back to the sources, to the original Greek and the, orig the original Greek of the New Testament, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the Greek of the church fathers, which they did absolutely believe were authoritative for mm -hmm. Christian living. And so they spent their time translating and reading and digesting and um, learning from the church fathers, which if I can plug again, <laughs> Podcastica Patristica is, that's what our podcast is about in that, in that side of things is to, to go back to the sources, the better sources, the ones that Luther and Calvin were trying to <laughs> emulate, but never really got it. The ones that coalesced in the, to, into the perfection of Calvin, Luther kind of, but Calvin. No. <laughs> <laughs> so humanism at the time, um, like we've mentioned, it was it was ultimately about society today in their own today, but it was trying to invigorate society today by returning to a pure age, and that was a myth that was very very common. Um, in fact, that was perhaps one of the driving myths, and by myths here. I, I mean like story like stories like ideas not necessarily wrong things one of the driving myths of humanism and the enlightenment in general is that there was well not really the enlightenment that is slightly different but it comes in the same general ballpark we can talk about that later or maybe in a different episode but humanism uh, very, very strongly believed that there was an ancient, purer form of being human in the past, and that by studying those figures, and by studying the church fathers, we can recover a pure theology. By studying Plato, we can find a pure metaphysic. By studying Aristotle, we can find a pure ethic. By studying the New Testament itself in Greek, we can find a pure Christianity. And that sort of drive to find like that that nostalgia 
is existed seemingly within every civilization. Yeah. I mean, right now the you know the impetus of people who are you know gung ho for Donald Trump's presidency is make America great again. There was a time when America was great, and we're trying to rediscover that by going back to the Constitution or yeah. whatever it might be. Um, I grew up Baptist. Our goal is to become the New Testament. Like um, Doug Weaver is a professor at Baylor University. His church, his book on Baptist history is called In Search of the New Testament Church because that's what Baptist identity is all about. Trying to rediscover and re uh, restructure ourselves according to the New Testament. And so this impetus has always existed, I think. Yeah, definitely. And if we're going to not leave anybody out of the like political discussion, like modern existentialism, liberalism, and postmodernity, I mean, what is that if not trying to undo... I mean, this is going to be contentious for people listening, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, what is that but trying to undo the problems of the Enlightenment and return to a pure pre-enlightenment way of thinking um in many ways it's a return to philosophical paganism in the way that nietzsche described in the gay science um but that's not the topic of this podcast <laughs> uh and plato right like or it wasn't plato which of the greek uh writers talked about like the three ages the golden age the silver age you know what i'm talking about i mean i think that was just common in the greek mythology oh really yeah, it was just embedded in it, I think. Uh, embedded in Greek mythology, <laughs> according to our resident ancient expert, Tyler Stanley, is that... <laughs> I took a class on it once. <laughs> uh, the ancient Greeks had this idea of a pure golden age, which there was a fall to a silver age, which there was a fall to, you know, the age that they currently lived in, which was like... Hesiod was the one who really made that a thing. That sounds right. Yeah. We're going to stick with that. It was Hesiod. It was very much Don't Hesiod. believe me? Snopes it. <laughs> Does Snopes still exist? Yeah. Nice. Hm. It's just a liberal couple. Yeah. Is it really? Like, is that, like, not is it really, but is that like... <laughs> That's like the conservative talking point. If you Snopes anything, they don't care. Oh. It's just a liberal couple in their garage. Nice. Uh, when I think of Snopes, I think of the days of dial-up internet. I don't know why. Like, Are they that old? I'm pretty old. Like, my dad was using Snopes before, yeah, like, huh? back when we had dial-up. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> along with all this, ad fontes to the sources, to the founts, um, is an emphasis on the original languages. And I'm only aware of two early Christian writers who bothered to learn Hebrew. Um, and that is Jerome and Origen. Do you know of any others? Other than, like, native Hebrew speakers like Ephraim. Aramaic speakers like Ephraim. They're the only ones that come to my mind. So, in our minds, at least, and, I mean, we've spent some time with this, the only ones we can think of are two church fathers for 1,500 years that learned Hebrew. One of the languages... Oh, well, I don't know anyone after... Uh, was there anyone after Jerome? So, like, I don't study that, so... After that, I mean, it very quickly devolves into not even learning Greek. Hmm. Like, before the Enlightenment, like, the Vulgate is how you go, mm. right? Like, Well, it's interesting that of all the people, those two are the ones that learn Hebrew, because <laughs> they are so different. 
Yeah. Jerome hated Origen. Like he thought he was a plague on Christianity. Hated him, which Jerome was kind of a dick anyway. He just yeah. bashed everyone. But yeah. And we're going to talk a bit about hermeneutics, which is just the science of reading, uh, especially in Christianity, the science of reading scripture. Um, Jerome and Origen are not what we would call the most literal of readers anyway, um, which is kind of funny to me that they're the ones who learn Hebrew, because today learning Hebrew is associated with like modern historical critical method, and that's like an enlightenment project, which is as far as you can get from Origen. Hmm. I don't know if I'd say it's as far as you can get. Because Origen was concerned with historical readings. That's that's what I, Origen fascinates me. I love Origen because he's just so multifaceted. Because on the one hand, he is just this absolutely brilliant mind, um, looking at the historical context, looking at the linguistic context, and doing everything he can. I mean, he had methods that we would disagree with, but for his day, he was doing some progressive linguistic study, um, looking at how the Hebrew worked and whether that, you know, affected the translation of it, um, and doing a lot of um, allegory, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. He was doing that in a very technical way. He wasn't just saying whatever he thought the text, whatever he wanted it to say, necessarily. Um, but at the same time, he was very... He took his allegory pretty far at times. Um, we have an episode on Origin, don't we? We do. And on our podcast, Dica Patristica, we have an entire episode on Origin where we talk about his hermeneutical method, where we talk about his upbringing and his life. Um... Like I said, I love Origen, and I think that you should take the time to look at him. A lot of contemporary Christians do not like him. They think that he's kind of a... He's like the weird uncle of Christianity. <laughs> and I don't think we should think of him that way. I think that he was incredibly formative and incredibly important for what we do today. Even, like, we will reject... A lot of what he said, but that doesn't mean that he's unimportant or weird. I think that we are doing a lot of things we do today because Origen did them, or because he inspired the later people who would... I mean, I mean Athanasius, for example. Athanasius is who he is because Origen started Origen's project. I don't think we can deny that. No, definitely. Origen's super important. Yeah. And Athanasius, if you're not aware, is who, Tyler? How important uh, was, is Athanasius to Athanasius, modern Christianity? Athanasius was the guy who basically made Nicaea, like, important again. <laughs> <laughs> he made Alexandria great again. He was Bishop of Alexandria, fought with Arius tooth and nail, fought with everyone after Arius tooth and nail. We also have an episode on him in our podcastica patristica. Um, but... Yeah, he was heavily influenced by Origenian thought, even though he didn't like Origen. He was like modern Christians today, like saying, oh, I hate Origen. He was a dummy. But then it turns out most of what you do is because of Origen. So if you want more information on Origen, <laughs> talk, uh, talk to yourself as you listen to our <laughs> podcast on Origen. Uh, so that's Christian humanism. Uh, it's a movement to reform the society, the theology, the philosophy, the ethics, and the politics of the society. And we should add to that 
that this humanism was spurred on by the invention of the printing press. Um, were you going to talk about the press later? Uh, maybe. Can I can we finish yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, sorry. So, like we said, uh, Christian humanism was a movement that uh, tried to reinvigorate the philosophy and theology and ethics and even politics of their day. And this is in just at the cusp of the Reformation in the 15th, uh, 16th, some 13th century um, by appealing to a pure former age. And Tyler has a note on that. So what we need to understand about this appeal to this earlier age is the act people's access to materials from this earlier age and their ability to spread their own ideas was pretty much solely because of the invention of the printing press. The printing press, people for years had been writing and writing, trying to combat the problems that existed within the hierarchy of the church at the time. But with the invention of the printing press, things were able to get out much faster. Um, books were being printed at a rate never seen before, which by today's standards would not be that much. But still, In it was day. impressive for that day. Yeah. So, or, uh, for, so Martin Luther was able to spread his message because of the press. Without that, I don't know that we would have seen the Reformation at all. Maybe it would have been a much slower process. The world would be different if the printing press hadn't existed at that moment for Martin Luther. Yeah. Like, Fun fact, Martin Luther was the first person to have his own works collected into the works of Martin Luther like yeah. in his own lifetime. First author ever in the history of the world to have his works collected into the collected works of author in his own lifetime, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, I haven't read the book. But when I took a class on Martin Luther with Dr. Brian Brewer, who is the Reformation scholar at Truett Seminary. Very important for both of us as yeah. far as we think of Reformation. Yeah. Um, he mentioned a book about, it's basically a book on branding and about how Martin Luther was revolutionary because of the way he branded himself through, like he huh. was able to use the printing press as a way to, like as a branding device. That's really interesting. <clears throat> yeah. I've read the book, so I don't know anything about it other than that it's about kind of his m marketing of himself through the press. Do you remember the name of it? Or... I don't. Do, do you think we'd be able to find it to put in the show notes? Or... Maybe I can Google it right now. Tyler's going to Google it right now. Um, so, as is, do you have anything else to say on that? On humanism? Because nope. we could move on. To... The Reformation, um, so there was humanism. There was this renovation of society and morals staunchly within the Christianity of its time. This was an inner church movement as well as what became the Reformation. Uh, moving slightly away from that, but not very much, you've got the Reformation was also a new way of thinking about and engaging with scripture. And so on the one hand, the Reformation was a new way of thinking about Scripture. Um, one of the catchwords of the Reformation, uh, at least as far as we think of it today, there are some analogs to it in the actual time period, um, but one of the solas 
the five solas, the catchwords of the Reformation, is sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. And this idea is that scripture and scripture alone can be binding on the consciences and the minds of Christians. And so that no human person or collection of persons, including the councils, so no pope, no cardinal, no bishop, and no council of people can ever speak the word of God in a strict sense. They can speak the word of God in the sense that, um, is it the Heidelberg Catechism that says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God? One of the early Reformed catechisms um, that I'm blanking on at the moment said, and Karl Barth picked this up and loved it, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And so Protestants would talk about humans speaking the word of God in that sense, but that's in a very derivative sense. Um, when Protestant writers thought about scripture in its or authority in its most pristine and pure and unassailable sense, they said only scripture is the word of God. No pope can say um, usury is good now just be by his own authority. Instead, a pope would have to argue from scripture and base his argument on scripture that usury has always been okay, right? Um, no pope can just declare that God is three persons with one essence. For early Protestants and Protestants throughout time, we have to say, does scripture seem to point into a God who has three persons in one nature? And so you get inner Protestant arguments over the Trinity in the early days and now. Um, but this is all because of an ethos that says no tradition itself is self-validating. Uh, quick side note, I did find the book. It is called Brand Luther, colon, How an Unheralded Monk Turned His Small Town into a Center of Publishing, Made Himself the Most Famous Man in Europe, and started the Protestant Reformation. And it's by Andrew Pedigree. Nice. Is that on Amazon? Are you looking? It is on Amazon. What's yeah. the publisher? It is Penguin. Penguin. Oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, so it's affordable and good. So um, there were there were precedents for this engagement with Scripture, this thought about Scripture, um, in the history of Christianity. I mean, no. No pope is ever going to say, I am standing above scripture. It's always couched in uh, questions of like who gets to interpret scripture. And so there was a pretty slow development from, say, the year 150 until the medieval Catholic, the medieval church to say that. When would you put medieval there? Uh, like yeah, that's a good question. I'm thinking right up. So when I say medieval on this podcast, I'm probably referring to what happens just before the Reformation. Okay, because when I think medieval, I think like 500s. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> it, these words are kind of slippery. Uh, antiquity can either mean ancient Greece or up to 700, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. And medieval can mean, like Tyler said, 500s for people who are into the older, outdated forms of thought the truer like the sources <laughs> to which martin luther and calvin were trying to appeal so for people who focus on the <laughs> earlier stuff 500 is medieval for people who focus on the later stuff you know 
800 is late antique. (laughs) (laughs) These roads are just slippery. I did a paper on Ambrose, and he's considered early medieval, and he was in the 400s. (laughs) So these words are essentially meaningless, and that's okay. Yeah. I think whenever we did our... When we started Podcastica Patristica, we talked about studying patristics. And we define patristics by whenever the hell we think. (laughs) (laughs) If we want to include... You know, someone in the 800s in patristics. Eh, okay. Uh, of course, Karl Barth considered himself <laughs> one of the church fathers. That's what I was just about to say. When <laughs> Karl Barth lists the church fathers, the patristics, he says, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and me. Right? Is there anyone else he says? <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there were antecedents to this, um, and there was a slow development to the church's authoritative. And I, I don't think the infallibility of the church ever really gains traction until the Catholic Counter-Reformation at Trent um, and, you know, a development since then. But uh, the Protestants took what was already implicit in Christianity up to that time, that scripture is the ultimate authority, and they pushed that to its logical end and said, if scripture is the only authority I need to bow to, then I don't need to bow to all these councils. Pretty much everyone before then said, Scripture is the ultimate authority with the understanding that I will still bow to these councils and then show that they are in line with Scripture. The early Protestants, especially the radical reformers like the Anabaptists, who Tyler and I are both Baptists, we trace our lineage back to them, uh, they said, no. Scripture and Scripture alone binds consciousness consciences and if the councils get that right awesome if they don't forget them give anything on that yeah i think it's important like this is a this is slightly tangential but maybe to talk about creeds for a second like the reformation is especially those of us who come from the radical reformation which would be the anabaptists they're known for being anti-creedal, anti-councils, like we, you know, we don't care. We don't quote Nicaea, we don't care about Nicaea. Uh, today, that's by and large true. Most church members in these free, so-called free church tradition, that's what we are considered. Um, they don't care what the early church thought. They barely care what the reformers thought. Um, and so creeds and councils and all of that is just, who cares? All I care about is what the New Testament and the Old Testament says. I can interpret it by myself, which we can talk about, you know, if that's Luther's fault, if that's Calvin's fault, if it's the Reformer's fault that we have this individualism. But this whole idea that um, the councils and the creeds don't matter is not what the early Reformers thought. They cared about the creeds and councils. Um, They considered them... Um, very important for the way that we formulate our doctrine and for the way we live ethically. Um, did you have more to say on that? No. Cool. Uh, yes. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I mean, I think it's... I, I think uh, Dr. Brewer, again, and probably Roger Olson has a lot to say on that, too. He is another... Um, he's a modern the- theology scholar at Truett Seminary, but he talks a lot about how um, early Baptists were very concerned with creeds 
Yeah, that's definitely true. And I mean, even like reformers who rejected the creeds as the creeds, like Calvin actually rejected Athanasius's creed, um, but he still believed all the things in the creeds, yeah. right? It's like, even if they're not authoritative, they're still true. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> the really radical Anabaptists were sometimes like anti-Trinitarian and modalist. Anti-Trinitarian. Yes. Yeah. I mean, some, some of them. Yeah. Not all uh, of them. Fun fact, I was proselytized by an anti-Trinitarian the other day. Uh, that sounds like a good uh, side story for all of us to get a brain break. Tally, you want to tell that story? Yeah. So I was working. I work in a library. And as I was working, a gentleman, he was very nice, uh, came up to me and asked me if I go to church and ended up, uh, you know, asking me if I was baptized and all of this. And he was like, oh, yeah. So who whose name were you baptized in? And I said, oh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He was like, oh, great. That's amen. That's great. And then amen. Uh, what's the what's God's name? And so I thought, oh, man, I don't know where this is going to go. So I just said, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is God. That's not wrong. So he said, amen. Uh, so what's uh, what's the Holy Spirit's name? And I, you know, was thinking about how best to answer this. And before I said anything, he brought up a Bible verse that he had clearly pre-prepared on his phone that showed it was some verse that said something about the spirit of Jesus Christ so he was trying to tell me that that means it's Jesus's name so he was what theologians would call a modalist which is at one point God was the father and then in the incarnation God became the son and then after the resurrection God became the Holy Spirit so we talked about in our, that in our Arius podcast. Yes, we did. We have. A, <laughs> it, it, by the way, we have another podcast. <laughs> if you didn't know. <laughs> if you didn't know, it's called Podcastica Patristica. We have a podcast on Arius, who is the guy known for saying that Jesus is not quite God. He's just like lesser God. He's something created, but he's higher than all of us humans. You can listen to that podcast and see uh, about the life and teachings of Arius. Because Arius was trying to reject the theology of the person who proselytized Tyler back to your story. Yeah, that was pretty much the end of the story. My boss boss ended up saying, uh, he has to work. (laughs) So unless you're, you know, have questions for him regarding library things, then he's got to get back to work. So that's a great uh, interlude. To give us all a brain break. <laughs> uh, so we had a bit on the schedule um, about the literal sense of scripture and about how Thomas Aquinas actually said that the only um, sense... So the early church leading to the medieval church had an idea of four senses of scripture. There was the literal sense, the moral sense, the an, um, allegorical sense, and the anagogical sense. Um, we might just do a separate podcast on senses of scripture in the medieval and reformation church. But for now, we'll just say um, the Protestant church is known for being the church of the literal sense. Um, but there was precedence to that. And even Thomas Aquinas. And I quote from my list of quotes that I prepared before this podcast. Uh This is Thomas Aquinas. For all the senses are found on one, the literal, from which alone any argument can be drawn, and not from those intended in allegory. So, the Protestant church is known as the church of 
the plain reading of Scripture, um, the historical reading of Scripture, and that that's the only theologically valid reading of Scripture, and that develops from the medieval church, but the Protestants were known as inheritors of that. And so to bring my, you know, interlude story to relevance for this conversation, whenever the guy brought up the Bible verse that says the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he said, we have to take this for what it says. Because I started saying, like, yeah, that's, you know, a Greek genitive, so the, you know, the Spirit of Jesus can mean, like, it is the Spirit accompanied or accompanied along with Jesus. It can be the Spirit called Jesus, like, it's Jesus' own Spirit. Um, and there's lots of theological issues there that we might say is, like, it is Jesus' own Spirit. Yeah, but it's not Jesus. There are three persons to the Trinity. And so he wouldn't take that for an answer. Um, but the the reason that bears importance here is because, as far as interpretation goes, um, because we no longer need the Pope or the Magisterium or any of the church hierarchy to tell us how to interpret these things, now we are individuals who can interpret these, the literal sense for ourselves, that's why we get this just deluge of denominations in different interpretations, because we have different people saying that they have the literal sense of the passage. Hmm. And so, yeah. I mean, as far back as Origen, and probably earlier, people were talking about the literal sense, but for so long the Roman Catholic Church had a monopoly on the interpretation that once we get to Luther and, you know, all hell breaks loose, or all heaven, if you like the Reformation. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's fun. <laughs> uh, the interpretations just go wild. And, yeah. I mean, the reason we have such crazy interpretations of stuff today is because we're allowed to interpret it for ourselves. And, personally, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I think... I don't think that there should be a hierarchical monopoly on interpretation. That doesn't mean I don't think there is a right interpretation. Um, I, I just think that uh, it's closer to the New Testament church, and as a Baptist, that's what I'm going for. It's closer to that to allow this freedom uh, of interpretation. And you're right, in the first volume of his... Christian Origins and the Question of God series. This is the New Testament and the People of God. Um, he has a really great line, um, which I didn't prepare. I'm just kind of saying it so it's not going to be verbatim. But he says something to the effect of, uh, we believe in like freedom of interpretation of Scripture, not because of the value of freedom, but because of the value of Scripture. Yeah. Like Not because we want to be free, but because we want Scripture to be free to speak into our lives and challenge us. And so that was the Protestant ethos, is free scripture from the teaching of the church, not free the teaching of the church from scripture, Yeah. right? So, like, the reason there is no mono voice is because we want scripture to be, be able to speak with, with its full voice, even if we don't like the voice, what the voice sounds like. Yeah. And, I, I mean, and there's a legitimate problem there. Uh, that we have to face is that because scripture is free from one person's or one organization's interpretation, 
we're gonna have crazy crap out there yeah and knowing how to navigate that is difficult and again that's why we have you know so many denominations of christianity is because of these different interpretations um things as wild as open theists or calvinists yeah which i'm an open theist i'm a calvinist so that's fun uh if i can caveat that with no caveats you're a calvinist (laughs) uh it's really, I mean, this is just a side note that has very little relevance to the Reformation. Or does it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, Paul said, don't claim to follow Apollos or Paul or even Christ. Uh, you should not, or is, in Jesus' own words, uh, claim no man as teacher. At the end of the day, um, when we box ourselves in names, we tend to overlook the valid arguments of other people. Um, and so when I say I am a Calvinist, I do not mean I like everything that John Calvin says. What I'm saying is I find the tradition of Calvin to be helpful in interpreting scripture. That's what Tyler means when he says he's an open theist. Uh, we wrote a book on this, by yeah. the way. <laughs> uh, I feel like this is one big commercial. <laughs> <laughs> a word from our sponsor. Tyler, what do you mean by that book? <laughs> yeah, so Gerhard <laughs> and I and the other co-founder of Patristica Press, we wrote a book called Divine Providence, A Conversation. I'm an open theist, Gerhard is a Calvinist, and Jake is an Arminian, and we just have a friendly, literally friendly discussion on our different beliefs and we critique each other and respond to each other and we've been this sounds cliche when i say it but it's actually true we have been best friends for the past i don't know four years and you've known jake for longer than that jake was the best man at my wedding yeah and gerhard and i were both in jake's wedding and tyler was in my wedding (laughs) we we jake and i knew each other from college yeah tyler and i have been best friends since we met here in seminary yeah the reason we're over we are over emphasizing our friendship is because this whole debate on calvinism and arminianism and open theism is it's stupid how hostile it's gotten yeah um and we are such close friends and we were able to write a book and stay close friends and we the purpose of the book is less to talk about what we think or to convert you to think what we think. And it's more about how to have a conversation on difficult issues and remain friends. And so, I, I like the first draft of my Calvinism chapter, I do not agree with anymore because of the arguments of Jake and Tyler. Hmm. Um, and Jake has said similar things to me. Hmm. I won't speak for Jake, but I will never change my mind. <laughs> no. Um, but this does bear on our conversation on the Reformation. Because because, yeah, because it goes into the different interpretations of Scripture and the freedom to do so and the freedom that comes with being able to be critiqued by others who have valid reasons to believe what they believe. Gerhard has valid reasons to believe Calvinism. And before I had met him, I was very closed off to it, very hostile to it. And he was able to, like, because of our friendship... And because of our differences within that friendship, we were able to have, both of us were able to come away with a more, um, a more compassionate view of one another's belief systems, a closer friendship, and a richer view of scripture, I think. Yeah. Because, 
I mean, I see scripture in new ways because Gerhard has shared with me the way he reads, you know, Romans 9 through 11, the infamous Calvinist passage. What does Piper so. call it? The the lion waiting for Arminians? <laughs> Something like that. Why am I not surprised that he <laughs> said that? It's like, I forget what it was. Anyway, uh, so the Reformation. So these things are things that lead to the Reformation that are sometimes... Um, contextual issues in the Reformation, but the Reformation itself is a reformation of the church's understanding of the gospel. And we save the best for last in our like historical segment of this podcast. So we're going to talk about the patristic era. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, dang it. Yeah, no. So <laughs> everything that we've said up to this point has very close ties to things that have gone before it. Um, so we talked about morals, and like we said, like the renovation of morals that the church was looking for was already like decreed at Nicaea, right? Like very beginning of the church. Um, the notions of like scripture and tradition, those were all hammered out in Irenaeus and uh, Clement and the, Paul himself. I mean, these issues were very, very old. And though the reformers wouldn't admit this, the, the new thing that they had to offer, which created the new sprawling world of uh, Protestant thought, is their new understanding of Paul, right? Like, so if the church has been freed from the, uh, if Christian thinkers have been freed from the church's authoritative uh, reading of scripture, and they're free to interpret scripture for themselves, then it is likely that they'll come to a new reading. And that's precisely what happened in the Reformation. That's precisely what happened with Luther. And that's really what is the Reformation, is a reformation of the church's understanding of the gospel. Um, it's a movement away from the gospel as uh, what we might crassly say as earning your salvation, um, though medieval Christians would never have said that. It, I mean, it kind of was. Um, movement away from that into a truly free gift of the gospel. And I mean, before I was a PhD student in Reformation, I thought I was going to do patristics. And so Tyler and I have both spent a lot of time reading original patristic texts, and I have never found anything quite as free gospel as Luther in pre-Lutheran Christianity. Have I mean, like, there are precedents, but nothing as totally free and gift and sola gratia as you find in the early reformers. I didn't ask Tyler this question beforehand, <laughs> but what do you think, Tyler? I, I mean, I guess... I mean, even like Augustine, like, early reformers said, Augustine is our guy. But even in Augustine, you've got, like, God changes your heart in order to be obedient and basically to earn your salvation, which is not how Augustine would have framed it, but it's kind of how he comes off. Yeah, and even then, like, I don't know that the early church writers would have been comfortable with that no, speech yeah. of freedom. Maybe not. So, like, you're not going to find, I don't, from what I've studied, I don't think you're going to find that discussion, or that language of freedom. They'll talk about freedom, but it's freedom for obedience. And yeah. they would say that's the right answer. They wouldn't be okay with Luther's explanation of the freedom of a christian yeah I, I really don't think so so 
They would have talked about grace, but it's a very different thing. It's very different. It's grace allowing you to be obedient and to earn. Yeah. Yeah. Which so is... no, so you're not going to find... And, I mean, as someone who has such high affections for the early church, like, and someone who... Like, like I'm, I'm more inclined to give... Like, I'm going to give more attention to what the early church says than to what Luther says. Not because it's Luther and Luther believes differently from me, but because of my view of how, and this is a view that Gerhard has taught me, my view of how the authority of scripture works. Like, the scripture was written by the apostles and by people who knew the apostles. And so the closer, it's kind of like the closer you are to the source of the spring, the more pure the water is going to be. And so Luther, while he says a lot of things that I'm going to agree with, and I think that he corrects a lot of things that the church got wrong, I think early Christians are going to have a lot of input that's going to be, um, like, I would want to defer to them before I defer to Luther because they're so much closer to the fount, to the fontes. Add fontes. <laughs> they're closer to the fontes, which is Jesus himself. Um, they're closer than Luther is. So I would want to defer to, like, maybe Luther was wrong to be so obsessed with the freedom here. But but maybe he's not. I, I mean, this is a question that I, I, I haven't resolved that for myself. And... We'll talk about um, the gospel at the end of this podcast mm. uh, and what we think of it. Um, but at least we can say that the Protestant gospel is the one truly new thing um, that Protestants brought to bear. They all re- they all would be so pissed that we just said that, but it's true. Like, and in fact, in the preface to the Institutes, Calvin, um, like some of the, his Catholic opponents were mocking him like, oh, you got a new gospel? Where's your new miracles to prove your new gospel? <laughs> and Calvin says, no, 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 we're not teaching a new gospel. We're teaching the gospel of Augustine in the early church. And I think it was, if I remember, I, I could be off on this, but I think it was Luther thought the church was essentially pure. You know, I mean, with minor things here and there, but essentially the church was pure until around the year 500, and then it was corrupted. And then after that, uh, we have to combat most of the things that the that the hierarchy has done. <laughs> and so, I mean, even he would say, no, I'm just going back to the source, to the stuff that happened before 500. But mostly because of modern, again, like modern historical critical thought and modern historiography on the early church and the New Testament, um, we now see that the Protestants really were offering something new. Um, And that basically new thing was a new understanding of the gospel. And Luther's gospel um, is known today through the the analogy of the great exchange. It's, you know, a really clear analogy. Um, Luther's gospel was, I am a sinner. Jesus is perfectly righteous. The punishment for sin is death and condemnation by God. The reward for being righteous is acceptance by God and eternal life. Now, uh, because Jesus loved us so much, Jesus came and took on himself the penalty for our sins, which is death on the cross and condemnation by God and sent to hell and all that. And therefore, since Jesus took our punishment, 
Jesus is allowed to give us by the Father his reward for his perfect obedience. And so that I, without being obedient at all, though obedience will flow from this, but considered theologically, without being obedient at all, I am considered perfectly righteous before God because of Jesus' own righteousness. And so there is just, there is a perfect exchange that happens, um, a great exchange that happens that counts me righteous and Jesus sinful. I get the reward, he gets the punishment. That's the gospel as pretty much all the reformers with a slight variance on the Anabaptists, though we can talk about that eventually. Um, that's the gospel as the Protestant Reformation has it. And I assume for many of the people listening to this podcast, that's just the gospel you heard. Why? Because you're a Protestant. Um, and one thing that I think would be really great for this podcast as we close this section is just read Martin Luther's own uh, description of his uh, conversion experience. And as I mentioned earlier, Luther was the first person to have his own works collected into the collected works during his lifetime. This is from the Luther's own preface to his own collected works. This is all a quote, and it's going to be long, but you're going to like it. Because Luther is just this, you know, really vivid writer. Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again. I felt confident that I was now more experienced, since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1, the justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, justice of God, which, by the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active justice, as they call it. That is, that justice by which God is just, and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and his wrath? This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice, that is, by that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, 
the just person lives by faith. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. I ran through the scriptures from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. That is the work of God, the, what God works in us, the power of God by which he makes us powerful, the glory of God. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God, with as much love as before I hated it with hate. <laughs> this phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. Afterward, I read Augustine's On the Spirit and the Letter, in which I found what I had not dared to hope for. I discovered that he too interpreted the justice of God in a similar way, namely, as that with which God clothes us when he justifies us. Although Augustine had said it imperfectly and did not explain in detail how God imputes justice to us, uh, side note, that is the great exchange, still it pleased me that he taught the justice of God by which we are justified. And so, for Luther, for Calvin, for other early reformers, the gospel is the great exchange. The gospel is the fact that when I put my faith, that is my trust, my hope, in Jesus as the forgiveness of my sins, that I am given all of Jesus' reward and he takes all of my guilt and punishment. That is the gospel of the early reformers, and that is the heart of the Reformation. As Luther said, it is the article by which the church stands or falls. That's it on the history. Tyler, what do you think about the gospel? What is the gospel? Was Luther right? I am a good Protestant, and so I think essentially yes. Um, he's right about the exchange. And this, it's frustrating now to talk about the exchange because mostly... When we talk about the great exchange, we're talking about atonement theories and different ways of understanding what Jesus did and how it happened. And, you know, people who aren't fans of traditional Christianity and uh, by traditional, I mean Protestant, they don't like talking about Jesus being a substitution for us because that means God is some divine child abuser which is, you know, a phrase Richard Dawkins like to, likes to use. Sure. Um, because we get into these conversations on atonement theories. Um, was Jesus abused for us? And is that fair? Is God some bloodthirsty monster in the sky that just had to have blood? And so he had to murder his son in our place because he had to have his blood. And I think <laughs> these are all unfortunate debates. I mean, I, I don't think we can deny that there is a substitution here. That there is... He became sin for us. And whatever that means, it means that I am not getting what I should have gotten. Um, what I deserved. And so I think that... Um, you know, earlier I talked about having some reservation on Luther and preferring early Christianity. It's not that I think that they're so different. I do think that there is freedom here. And I think um, I think what Luther taught was necessary in, in contradiction to what the church was um, putting forward at the time, at least, on how penance worked and about how you had to go through all these hoops in order to earn repentance. And I think Luther... And we can talk about Luther more later, but Luther had 
severe depression and severe crisis in his own life because of his insecurities, because of all these, you know, demands put on him. Like, you have to be this holy. You have to be this pure in order to be forgiven. You have to do your penance. You have to do your... Um, do your time, say your prayers. And he did all of it and still felt like there's nothing I can do. I'm so sinful. And I think the unfortunate truth is that Luther's depression was a blessing for the church in the yeah. end. Um, the, the anxiety that he had through a lot of his life led to his discovery of this passage in Romans. And the freedom that it brought, I think, is a freedom that we need. And I don't think it's a freedom in contradiction to the early church. I'm, I'm afraid that what I said earlier made it seem like Luther is against the early church. I just think language is going to be different. But ultimately, it is freeing. And I think Luther caught that. And I think that the Roman Catholic Church, at least at the time, had forgotten that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think so, too. I mean, I'm... I completely agree with everything Tyler said. I think that as a good Protestant, my first answer is yes, and my second answer is let me explain. Um, <laughs> I think that... So Calvin, um, through this podcast, you're going to hear me loving on Calvin, uh, <laughs> and that is something I will never apologize for. Um, I think Calvin was... I mean, not I think, like... Calvin was the most coherent uh, mind of the Reformation. That's just un unquestionable. Uh, but Calvin is the one who gives us the atonement theory that backs up. He's the one who creates the internal framework in which Luther's um, existential claim functions, right? Luther builds the uh, body and Calvin builds the engine. Um, Luther makes the claim and Calvin makes it work. And so what Calvin um, ended up creating as a theological underpinning to Luther's uh, car of the gospel um, is known today as penal substitutionary atonement, um, which gets you know mocked by people like Richard Dawkins. I wasn't aware that he was the one who first... I don't know that he first said it, but, I th you know, he and Peter Hitchens and the new atheist crowd and the progressive Christian crowd use the same language. Does Greg Boyd say that? Probably. Uh, so, you know, the, you got this all this stuff about God as cosmic child abuser. That's mostly a rejection of Calvin's doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Um, and I just think that, yeah, like I think that that is a perfectly excellent step on the way towards what we should think today um so i'm writing a book that right the substitutionary atonement is what we should think today yeah uh i think that's the best thing in historic christianity about the atonement um so i'm writing a book right now called which i call right now it might not end up being called that uh the gospel according to jesus and i recently wrote the chapter on what is the atonement and the example I use is that through Christian history, you have a development, starting with Christus Victor, which is like Jesus beats up Satan, which I think is just madness and absurd, <laughs> uh, and just a holdover from polytheism, honestly. Um, Tyler might fight me on that, maybe? No? Yeah. Maybe not? This is just a question that I choose to not care about. <laughs> like, I know that, like, 
Jesus is God. Jesus suffered and died for our sins. I believe and follow him. Like, I just leave it that simple in my personal life. Like, I'm fine talking about the theories and theology behind it. That's fine, but this isn't a particular theology that I care to get wrapped up in because I think that I'm just annoyed by the polarizing and mm, yeah. lack of listening that I've just tuned myself out to it mostly. That's fair. There's a lot of polarizing and not listening. <laughs> uh, so in my chapter, I say Christus Victor is the first. It's obviously the first outside of the New Testament. That's not questionable. Um, but it's madness. Second, you've got Anselm's satisfaction theory, which is God is so cool and knows he's so cool. <laughs> Sorry, God knows God is so cool. Don't want to use gendered language for a non-gendered being. Uh, like God or Satan. Controversy. Uh, <laughs> no one ever says, like, Satan's self, you know? Like, people say God, God's That's self. True. But no one says Satan, Satan's self. And I've tried. I've started to say that in my writing. Hmm. I don't know how it's going to go over. Does Satan have a gender in the Bible? No right. angels have gender, do they? They no. have male names, masculine names. Yeah, so does God. I mean, right? right? So like, yeah, God is true. masculine. They are. But, like, the whole point is that God is not gendered. God yeah. doesn't have a penis. Neither does Satan. <gasps> <gasps> uh, so, first you've got Christus Victor, then you've got Satisfaction. Uh, God is such a great European noble that <laughs> God can't uh, abide by any slight on God's honor. And so that Jesus comes and fulfills God's honor by giving God someone to beat up on. Uh, to show that no infraction of God's honor will be tolerated. That's Anselm, basically. Um, and then I talk about penal substitution, which is a great step forward, basically developed by Calvin, which is that God is a righteous judge, um, and God can't, important word there, can't let sin... Are you an open theist now? God can't do something? No, that's what I reject, and I move forward. Lame. Yeah. Uh, so God can't let sin go unpunished, so God punishes Jesus in our stead. Uh, that, I think, is the best previous theory of the atonement i would want to move past that and talk about a sacrificial notion of the atonement which is penal substitution but not in a european uh law court metaphor but in an ancient near eastern sacrificial metaphor it's not that god is this super cool western judge who abides by the constitution and therefore doesn't let infractions of the U.S. law go unpunished. It's that God is a deity who will punish you if you break God's commands, right? So it's not using uh, law courts as a metaphor. It's building on previous law courts, law court metaphors, but it's saying that God is not bound by some super God force that is forcing God to say, you must uh, punish sin. God in God's self is saying, I am the super deity, God deity itself, uh, which will punish sin. Um, which you can read that about in the book. My short answer is yes, but our language obscures the case that God um, in penal substitution in the Gospel of Luther and Calvin, uh, it turns God into a lesser God. In the metaphor itself, it implies that there is a God above God, which is justice. Um, if I can remove that caveat, which I do, by talking about a sacrificial notion of the atonement, um, then yes, I agree with Luther and Calvin. And I think that is the gospel. <laughs> I've been drinking this whole time. So if that was meandery, 
You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's... We've talked about a lot here. A lot of complicated things. Because the Reformation was incredibly complicated. Because there were so many things leading up to it. From moral issues, to economic issues, to political issues, to doctrinal issues. It's just a mess of issues that leads to this thing that we call the Reformation. Ultimately, it's not just a Reformation, there are many Reformations, plural. Because, like Gerhard mentions, we have Luther, we have internal Reformations happening within the Catholic Church that they call the Counter-Reformation. We have the Anabaptists, which is called the Ra Radical Reformation, and a bunch of different obscure people and events that we've never heard of um, that hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about here on the podcast in time. But to bring all of this back into our original question, what is the Reformation? I think to summarize everything, we can say the Reformation was a rethinking of the gospel caused by this mixture of social upheaval. Yeah. Um, if we didn't have this rethinking of the gospel, this is debatable. I'm sure there are plenty of you to debate it. And please comment and give your give your create a conversation on our Facebook page and on our Twitter page um, about this. Tell us what you think. But it seems to us that the Reformation wouldn't have been a Reformation had it not been for this rethinking of the gospel. All of the social upheaval, the moral issues, the political issues, those could have been resolved internally. I mean, the, the canons of the church, the law of the church had existed in place for a long time that would have dealt with most of these issues. But it wasn't until the gospel was rethought and reframed that the Reformation has lasted to this day. And we can have another podcast on whether the Reformation is over. I think that's a good question to consider. It's a very common question among theologians today. It is. Of the Reformed and Lutheran traditions. So... The Reformation. It began as a moral thing. It turned into a political thing. <laughs> it was about scripture and tradition. But ultimately, all of that took a backseat to what is the gospel. And that's what the Reformation was. A reformation of the gospel. The heart of the church. The article on which, in Luther's terms, the church stands or falls. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. It'll be cool. It was cool. Thanks, y'all.